Father, we pray that you would um, be with us, um, that you would guide our, our discussion um, as we think about the, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension, and the return of Jesus. We pray that you would help us um, as, we, um, as we explore and study these things, that you would help us to grow in our love for you and your son. We pray these things in his holy name. So, like I said, we're going to be talking about Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, um, and asking and answering questions like, why, why did Jesus suffer for us? Why did he rise again? Why did he ascend to heaven? And what will happen when he returns? Um, sometimes we start with questions like, did they happen or whatever? Um, so obviously, we're, we're, this isn't, we aren't presenting arguments for the historicity of these events or things like that, right? Uh, that would be a separate um, and much longer <laughs> conversation, right? Yes, so we're assuming that you accept the historicity of the Gospels. Um, that would be true for all the, all the other prior ones, right? Well, if we're talking about God, well, do you even believe that God exists? And if you do, why do you believe the God of the Bible? Those are different conversations, right? So these, you have to have some level of assumptions for these. Um, but sometimes we don't ask these why questions. We, we accept those basic facts, right? Okay, well, I agree that Jesus did die. I agree that he did come back to life. But we don't ask, well, why does that matter? That's the story, but, but why did that happen? What's the, why is that important? Um, why does that matter for me? So we want to make sure we're exploring those things. So um, together, let's say this section of the creed. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We'll get to that part next week. Yeah. Um, so what we're going to do uh, is we're going we're gonna to talk about the sufferings of Jesus, what he actually suffered. Um, but I, th I think it's, that's something that I don't like entering into lightly. Just, oh, let's just talk about that. It's very heavy. Um, so to help us kind of enter into that, much like when we, when we have a Good Friday service, um, silence, right? We're entering into this, this period. So in the same way, I want us to help kind of enter into this. So um, let's sing together the first three verses of, of Sacred Head Sermon, please. Sacred head, golden, defiled and put to scorn. O kingly head, surrounded with mocking crown of thorns. What sorrow marred thy grandeur? Can death thy bloom beflower? Whole countenance to splendor The hosts of heaven adore Thy beauty long desired Hath vanished from our sight Thy power is all expired. 
quench the light of mine. Army for whom thou diest, hide not so far thy grace. Show me your love most highest, the brightness of thy Thy most bitter passion, my heart to share doth cry with thee for my salvation upon the cross to die. Ah, keep my heart thus moved to stand thy cross beneath, to mourn thee well, beloved, yet thank thee for thy death. So when we talk about the, the, the suffering of Jesus, the suffering that Jesus went through, let me get, get down here. Um, Jesus suffered a lot. He was, he was betrayed by a friend. Um, though the Gospels make it clear from early sections that Judas was the one to betray him, that Judas was um, doing some, some scheming and, and um, looking out for himself. It also makes it clear that he was a part of the disciples, right? He was, he was going out that when, they went, when the 72 are sent out, that Judas is among them. Uh, the disciples are handing out the loaves and the fishes. Judas is among them, right? When Jesus is doing his works, his miracles, um, his teaching, Judas is there. Um, he spent a lot of time with Jesus, um, that he was, he was, Jesus gave him the op opportunity to be fully invested, fully uh, participating, right? So here, go ahead and take care of the money, um, right? Uh, so Judas, Judas handled that. Jesus invested in and loved Judas, and Judas betrayed him. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, Jesus washes his feet. He's, he's a full participant um, and still betrays him. Um, so I think it's sometimes it's easy for us to go, oh, I know who Judas is already, so let me write him off. But that, that, that lessens the feeling of the betrayal, I think, and, and that's, that's really important that we, that we remember that. Um, that betrayals hurt, that even though Jesus knew this was coming, that didn't, that didn't lighten the blow, um, that Judas was Jesus' friend. Um, that Jesus was beaten and mocked. Uh, that he was struck in the face. Um, he had a blindfold placed over his head. Um, he was spit upon. That he was scourged. Um, so he was whipped 39 times uh, before a purple robe was placed on his back and a crown of thorns on his head. Um, and sometimes, sometimes men would die from the whipping alone, um, which is why they would, say, they would say that 40 lashes would kill somebody, so we'll give you 39, get you right to the point of death. Um, often internal organs were laid bare, um, and then they hailed him as king of the Jews and laughed at him, mocked him. Uh, Jesus carries his cross as far as he's able to, um, and after falling several times, Simon of Cyrene takes up the cross for him the rest of the way. Jesus is crucified and he's killed. He has his arms stretched out on the hard wood of the cross. His hands and his feet are nailed to it. And he's lifted up before all. He was naked. He was bleeding. Most people died of asphyxi asphyxiation or suffocation. Um, and that's the way that, that Jesus died. Uh, and normally what soldiers would do is they would break the legs of those who were crucified so that they couldn't lift themselves up to take a breath. But when the soldiers approached Jesus, they realized that he was already dead. 
which confirm that the soldier pierces his side and blood and water flow out. Finally, Jesus is laid in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. The tomb is sealed with a large stone and guards are placed outside to prevent the disciples from stealing the body. So Jesus goes through this horrific suffering on the cross for us. Um, but this raises the question, okay, again, again, going from, okay, I accept the fact that Jesus did this, but why did Jesus do this? What was the point of this? Um, and there, there are a lot of ways to view the sufferings of Jesus. Um, and for a, for a complete treatment of not only the historical ways that the church has looked at the atonement, um, but also scripture, um, origins of the cross, um, why do we cross ourselves? The whole history of how, how, how has the church looked at and appropriated the cross as a sign of our faith. Um, there's a book called The Cross of Christ by John Stott that's very, very thorough in going through all those things. So I definitely highly recommend that if you want to really explore that. Um, I don't agree with him everywhere, but he's very thorough and gives you original sources, all that to really explore. Um, the Cross of Christ by John Stott. Yep. Um, so, so Jesus accomplished a lot on the cross. Um, it's not just a simple event. There's not only one way to view it, which is why you see the gospel writers um, have different views, different takes on it. You see the epistles have different views, different takes on it, different ways of expressing it. But, um, the, but the main understanding would certainly be that Jesus suffered on the cross for our sins. So Isaiah writes, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by men, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Jesus took our sins upon himself, our transgressions, our griefs, our sorrows, he takes them upon himself at the cross. He's wounded, stricken, pierced, and crushed in our place. That though we deserve death, for our sin, he dies in our place. It's because of his willingness to die for us that we are able to have communion with God. It's because he became like us um, so that we may live a holy life. So that we can truly say that the God of the universe was nailed to a tree. That the blood of God redeemed us. That a man who had done nothing wrong was tortured and murdered so that we could live. prophets, the Psalms, yes. Um, yeah. And there's, there's something really powerful about, about, I think, particularly looking at the Old Testament and saying, okay, the, the earliest Christians didn't have the New Testament, <laughs> right? Because they have their, their eyewitnesses, right? So Peter can say, well, I was there, and John can say, right? So they can, okay, well, we were there when we saw these things, but okay, well, where are you going to show it to me from the scriptures? Like, you can, well, all you have is the Old Testament. Um, so yeah, can you present the gospel just using the Old Testament? Every early disciple of Jesus only had the Old Testament to use. <laughs> um, so, but then to recognize that actually the earliest Christians did just that, even, even to the point where they, some of the earliest Christians went to the extreme of when they would see certain numbers, they would say, oh, well, that, that was Jesus. Um, so for example, um, in uh, Genesis, when Abraham had the 318 men circumcised, um, one of the early church fathers, I think it's in Shepherd of Hermas, it's either Shepherd of Hermas or Epistle of Barnabas, I always forget which. Um, but they, the, in Greek, you don't have numerals, so you have letters that represent numbers. And so the first two letters are, in English, the equivalent of I and it looks like H, but it's an E, which are the first two letters of Jesus' uh, name in Greek. And then the third uh, letter that stands for the number is the equivalent to a T in English.
circumcision. So he says, like, here's the first two letters of Jesus, and there's his cross. It's just the number of people who are circumcised, but they're looking so closely at the text to find any indication of Jesus being present in there that that's, that's how far some of them would go um, in terms of allegorical, never, never mind more straightforward passages like Isaiah where, okay, he's, he's crushed for our iniquities, he's pierced, those kinds of things. Um, this raises another question. Where was Jesus? Yeah. Asking about Yeah, no, I, I think, so we'll talk about it a little bit, but. Um, but the Jewish people were so Yeah, I think, I think returning that question is helpful. How would you do it? But, but, yeah. Um, uh, they're in the office. Um, yeah, if you go outside and just kind of write, write across that. Yep. Um. No, but I think, I think, so again, the, so like we talked about last week, that Jesus uh, takes on our human nature um, so that he can elevate it, um, so that we can be made like him. Um, but more to the point, and we'll, and we'll, we'll talk about this later, um, but that if Jesus is not, uh, that, that basically that God sets up this, this system where blood covers over sins, right? So you see that in the Old Testament, right? Um, but a animal sacrifice is limited in terms of what it's meant to cover for sin. Um, Right, so say, say, say I do believe and, and trust that God sets up a system where you know, I can kill this goat in, in my place and that'll cover my sin. Will I ever confess all my sins? What about my future sins? Uh, there's all kinds of questions about that, right? Um, and even in that case, it, all that deals with is my sin problem. So okay, my debt with God is paid for, but I still have to suffer the consequences of my sin, which is death. Um, so that because Jesus is divine and human, he's able to actually do more than what the hope of the Hebrews is actually, that's his main thing, is that this old uh, sacrificial system can't cover over sins, can't deal with death, can't deal with all these larger problems, but that Jesus alone can. Because he's human and divine, he's able to cover sins, for all sins for all people for all time, um, that he's uniquely capable of doing this. So the other thing, the author of Hebrews basically says he, he alone is capable to save us to the uttermost or completely save us. Um, so some of those whys we don't have answers for, right? Why could have God not done it a different way? Yeah, he maybe could have. Um, God can do whatever he wants to. The fact that he chose to do this, I think demonstrates two big, really important things. One, the relationship between the Father and the Son. It's really important that we don't think of this as God thinking, well, who should I have go die for me? Oh, I'll have the Son do it. That's not the nature of their relationship. Um, right? They're not in conflict. They don't have differing wills. They don't, you know, it's not that kind of a thing. Um, while Abraham and Isaac and, and the almost sacrifice of Isaac prefigures that, they're very different. Right? Um, Isaac has no idea what's going to happen. <laughs> right? Jesus goes willingly to the cross. Um, he says in, in John, he says, I give up my life of my own accord. Um, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down for my sheep. Um, so it's very clear that Jesus desires to do this. And the, the why is, okay, so we don't know why did, why did he decide to do it this way exactly? We don't know. 
we do know that, that one of the reasons why, uh, or one of the benefits of him doing it this way is that it actually fully redeems us, fully saves us, not just from our sin, but from the consequences of that sin, and puts us again in a better position than we were in the garden. We're actually more united with God than we were before. There's a, and there, there, there's a lot of, again, this is why there, there are so many different, um, they call them atonement theories, um, but there's so many different ways of looking at what Jesus did. Um, so I'd recommend reading that book by John Stott as he goes through all the theories, Anselm has a theory, the reformers theories, early church theories, how do they look at this, how do the scriptures talk about it, what different metaphors do the scripture use for talking about it, because the reality is there isn't just one view, there's not one unified view in terms of how we're going to look at it, what lens we're going to use, there's a lot of different ones. So. When we pick one, we're actually limiting our understanding of what's happening. Um, so just as the scriptures have multiple views in the church historically, we've had multiple views of how do we understand what God's really getting at there. It takes a lot of study and a lot of, yeah, there's a lot going on there. But, but, the, but the particular question, I think the answer is we don't know. Why didn't God choose to do this a different way? We don't know. Well, I think going, going back to Job, right? I've spoken of things I, I don't understand. Things seem wonderful to me, right? Um, so there's there's some element of, of mystery here where we don't we don't have full knowledge of it. Um, but we do we do know the benefits of it, and that explains some of the why. Um, but yeah, why 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 such a gruesome way to do it? Why at this point in time? Why right? Because the scriptures give us some clear some uh, nudges toward this, right? So like Paul talks about in Galatians that in the fullness of time God sent His Son to be born of a woman, born under the law, right? what's the fullness of time? This was the right time when God wanted to do this, right? So um, again, sometimes we have misunderstandings of how God's working because we have really weird ways of understanding eternity with what we do eternity past things that don't make any sense. Um, and even just how, how the relationship between the father and the son is. It's not that the, fa- that the father's really, really mad and so Jesus says, well, I'm gonna go calm him down by dying and then somebody has to deal with this. No, <laughs> right? Paul goes so far as to say that God was in Christ reconciling the world back to himself, right? So there's full and complete union between the Godhead in terms of what's happening at redemption. Not that the Father dies for us, Jesus alone dies for us, but that, but that they are working together. This is something that God wants to do, um, that he's taking um, our sin upon us, right? So like Paul goes so far as to say that he became sin. Um, he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Very exalted, very high language, both in terms of him becoming sin, well, what does that mean? And we become the righteousness of God, what does that mean, right? Very lofty, very high language. Again, put, there's mystery there. It's not, it's not fully explained, but that there's, that there's a lot more going on there than we can understand and comprehend. Um, but the benefits of it are clear. Um, and, and that's, I think it's helpful to kind of say, you know what, we don't, just because we don't have an answer for why that way doesn't mean it's not clear that God did this. Yeah, I think.
think things will be, I think, I think, yeah, in the fullness of time, we'll have, we'll have more understanding of things and be able to see things better. But hopefully we're doing that as we're growing in our faith too, right? Where we go, oh, I did, I misunderstood this or, or I had an incomplete understanding of this idea. So hopefully I'm continuing to grow um, and explore those things and go, yeah, okay, that's maybe a good way, or this was a helpful way for me to look at this for this period of time. But now this actually adding in these other components is, is more helpful or, you know, or as you're running into people, right? Oh, this person has this question. Well, I haven't asked that before, so I don't know. So let me think about it. Let me reflect on it. Let me, there's nothing wrong with that, right? To go, okay, let me explore and, and think about that. Um, that's what the church does. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. Any other questions about that? Okay. So where was Jesus' soul for three days? So this is something that's addressed in the Apostles' Creed, not the Nicene Creed, but I think it's important to talk about because there's some misunderstandings about it. Um, so when Jesus died, that doesn't mean that Jesus stopped existing, right? Um, so his body was in the tomb, but, but where was his soul? So in Acts 2, Peter talks, uh, uh, is preaching the gospel to the people, and he quotes from Psalm 16, um, which was actually quoted just this last week as well, again. Um, but he quotes it saying, you did not abandon my soul to Hades. Um, so the Old and New Testaments talk about this place, uh, this realm of the dead, where um, those who have died, where their souls are. So in the Old Testament, it's called Sheol. In the New Testament, it's called Hades. Um, so when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, where it said Sheol, they would put Hades. Um, yep. So in the New Testament, you see several different words. Part, one of the reasons why there's confusion around this idea is because when the, uh, when the Bible was, well, when the King James translators were stealing from other previous English translations, um, <laughs> they translated, there's uh, four different words used in the New Testament for different realms. So there's Hades, there's Tartarus, Gehenna, um, and then you have this lake of fire, right? These are distinct places, um, but they translate all of them hell. Um, so even though the New Testament writers use distinct words to talk about different places, the earliest translations into English did not distinguish. Um, so if you read like an old English version of the creed where you have um, Jesus will come to judge the quick and the dead, it also says he descended into hell. He didn't descend into hell the way that we're talking about it. So you have the realm of the dead, the place where, where souls go, uh, and then you have hell, which is the lake of fire, um, which is distinct. No one's in hell right now. Um, so hell is, uh, is the place that's prepared for the devil and his angels, um, and no one goes there until after Jesus returns. Um, so Peter talks about this um, in his first epistle. He talks about how uh, Christ proclaimed um, his victory over the dead uh, or over death to the spirits who had been disobedient, and that Jesus preached the gospel um, to the dead so that they might be saved. So in 1 Peter 3, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in whom he went and preached, or sorry, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. And then a few sentences later, he says uh, in chapter 4, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh according to men, they might live in the spirit according to God. Um, these are just some passages. Uh, Paul talks about it in Ephesians 4. He talks about it in Romans 10. Um, again, Psalm 16 is, is predicting that. Um, but basically this idea that when what we see Jesus doing here is uh, he is descending to the dead, proclaiming the gospel to those who have died um, before he had done his works so that they could believe the gospel um, and also uh, be saved if they, if they want to believe it. Um, we also see that this is, this is Jesus taking over all of creation again. Um, so we'll talk about this at the very, very end. 
Um, but again, one of the one of the big cosmological views of what is God really doing is that God is taking back all of creation, right? So Jesus comes to Earth and he says, "The kingdom of God is near. God's kingdom's coming, right?" Um, and where is he bringing his kingdom? Everywhere. God's taking ba back over all of creation. Um, that he's going to be ruling and in control of everything. Um, and so this is also part of Jesus taking back everything that's in creation. Um, everything. Yep. Yeah. So, is that... Yes. Yes, yeah, so you might remember in John 20, uh, when uh, Mary Magdalene sees Jesus, and she thinks he's the gardener, right? And then he says, Mary, and she's like, oh, he's my rabbi. And he goes, she goes to hang on to him. And he says, don't, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go and tell my brothers that I, will, I, that I am going to go with them to my, my God and to your God, right? So he, but he's explicit there, I have not yet ascended. So if he w hasn't ascended back to the Father, if he wasn't back with the Father, where was he? Again, Peter tells us he was in the realm of the dead, proclaiming the gospel. Um, when he came back to life, he's, he's back on earth. But in those three intervening days, he said, so after, after the resurrection, right, he says, I have not yet ascended to my Father. So he can't have been with the Father. So where was he? He was in the realm of the dead, um, preaching the gospel. Yeah, so this is actually, so like if you, so in Luke 16, Jesus tells the, it's called the parable sometimes that they use real names, um, of Lazarus and the rich man, right? And so you have, uh, Lazarus is in what's called Abraham's bosom, this, this uh, area where other, other people who have died who are right with God, he's there. And then the rich man, who was mean to Lazarus and didn't care for him, is being tortured, right? So he's, a, he's in fire, he's suffering, um, right? So Jesus talks about them being in these two places, and he kind of says that they're in Hades. Um, right, so that, and they're able to communicate with each other, they're able to see one another, um, right, but this is very clearly not the lake of fire that the book of Revelation talks about, because we're told explicitly that no one's in there, that's a place reserved for the devil and his angels, and that at the final judgment, Hades itself is thrown into the lake of fire. So Hades can't be the lake of fire, because it's thrown into it. Um, so you have these very distinct, and it's also not heaven. So uh, this is one of the ways that Paul talks about it. So in Ephesians 4, he ta he's talking about the whole, how the Holy Spirit is poured out and that people receive gifts, but he talks about how Christ, um, uh, that he who ascended also descended, um, and that when he ascends again, that he, that he is um, giving gifts and that he's ransoming captives. Um, and so this idea that those who have been trapped in Hades, those who have been stuck in the realm of the dead, are now actually with Christ. Um, this is why Paul says to, to die is to be with Christ. Um, that th yeah, that those who are in Christ are no longer in the realm of the dead. They're with Jesus in heaven. At, at the ascension. Yeah, it says that he led captivity captive and brings these, yeah. So there's this whole idea that basically, that again, Jesus is going and he's, and he's okay, I, I'm going to take control over this realm. But more than that, I'm taking those who belong to me with me. Um, right, so he says, wherever I am, there you will be also. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Um, right, so this whole idea that if we're really in Christ, Paul emphasizes this over and over again in Ephesians. If you're in Christ, that means you're fully with him, right? So he says, even right now, you are seated with him in the heavenly places. Um, but that reality comes even more true when we die, um, that we're not separated um, in this realm of the dead, but rather we're actually with Christ. 
which is exactly what we see in the book of Revelation as well. We see the martyrs are under the, under the altar of God, crying out, how long are you, are you going to wait um, until you um, give us justice, basically? Not bodily. Um, yeah, yeah, that their souls were, yeah. That's what it was called. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so if you read, um, if you read the Church Fathers, they have differing understandings of uh, the, um, the man who, thief who dies next to Jesus. Um, and you can, read the, you can read the Greek differently. So he could be saying, truly I tell you today, comma, you will be with me in paradise. Or he could be saying, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. The second reading is what most people go with. My problem with that is again, what Jesus says in John 20, I have not yet ascended to my father. Um, so you can parse the Greek either way. Um, so the question is, what does he mean? So I would say looking at the whole yeah, so like Augustine, for example, Augustine says that in his divinity, he never left the side of the Father, and so therefore he was, he was able to go, he was the first man in heaven, that, and that, I think that he's really messy. Um, and, and he couldn't recognize the divinity. How would he recognize the divinity of Jesus? He would recognize his soul, <laughs> right? How's he gonna, so looking at the whole of scripture, um, I, w- I would say that, um, yeah, that Jesus was saying, I'm telling you the truth today. You will be with me in paradise. Um, <laughs> Paradise in the New Testament, that, that word is only used a few times. Right. That's a pretty common interpretation of it, and a lot of translations actually, I would argue, try to hide this idea. Um, so the ESV is one of them um, that hides this idea that Jesus is preaching to the dead. And if you read their notes, you'll say, yeah, those who are spiritually dead. The problem is the text doesn't say spiritually dead. <laughs> it just doesn't. It says necros, those who are dead. Um, and, it, and, it, and the context of that text is that, is that uh, immediately in, in, in First Peter 3 is that he's preaching to those who are dead and immediately gets reference to those who were disobedient in the days of Noah um, and that Jesus preached to those people. So people that want to deny that Jesus went to the realm of the dead um, will say things like, well, Jesus was preaching through Noah to those who were spiritually dead. But the problem is the text doesn't say that. Um, and in fact, Peter goes on to talk about how we're saved by... Right, right, but that's what I... Yeah, so, so I would... Looking at the text, I don't see how you can read it that way because he's not, he doesn't seem to be talking about those who are spiritually dead and not really dead. Um,
bugger gun with the assault rifle. Yeah. I think probably because of death of body and soul. Um, so, but, but that doesn't mean that the person is, is distinct from their soul, if that makes sense. Um, so to be alive means that your soul and your body are both living and active, right? Um, so um, you could say that we're praying for their souls or whatever, um, but I'm praying for the whole person, uh, that God will one, one day raise up and one day they will have a body again. So. Sometimes the language does do that. That's right. So that I would argue they can hear our prayers, and that's been the tradition of the church Catholic, um, is that we pray for the dead. Um, you see those those uh, rituals beginning very, very early. Um, martyrdom with Polycarp is probably one of the earliest ones, where um, they would go, and the, the, on the day that he was martyred, they'd go and they'd pray for him and have a service um, and celebrate the Eucharist there, um, looking forward to his resurrection. Um, so, And you have Jesus talking about how uh, God is not the God of the, of the dead, but of the living, right? That Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, though they are dead in body, are alive to God. Um, not talking about resurrection. Um, so there seems to be some, some, some people do believe in soul sleep, where they say that when you die, you, your soul is asleep and you're not conscious. That doesn't seem to be how the New Testament talks about it. Um, and I would argue not even the Old Testament. Um, so there does seem to be, again, because you have this, this realm of the dead that's talked about. Um, so. God is in eternity. God is separate and distinct. God is timeless. God can't change. Yeah, they're still waiting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and like we talked about a couple weeks ago, that God is long-suffering, that he wills for, for all to be saved, that he's waiting. So that these martyrs are saying, yeah, God, we want you to avenge us. How long? Um, so they're praying. They're crying out. You see the angels are, are using incense and worship, and we're explicitly told these are the prayers of the saints. Well, who's praying in the passage just prior? Those who have died. <laughs> so that they're actively praying, that there's this whole full participation of the whole body of Christ living and dead, um, and, we, and we do that even in our liturgy, right? Joining our voices with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, everyone who's in heaven, forever sing this hymn, right? So 
we believe that the whole church is constantly active in worship. see heavenly worship go look at revelation yeah there's a whole temple there and a lot of people worshiping there yeah <laughs> yeah um so lots of different ways again to read that but i have a heart even when you when you when you've got spaces where it explicitly interprets it right these are the prayers of the saints and you have those who are dead praying i go well no matter how you're going to read that you have dead people praying and if i'm sleeping i'm not praying so they have to be conscious in some way um and again looking at how paul talks about for him to if when he's dead that he'll be with christ well if i'm asleep um, who cares who's around me because those kinds of things, the, the language that he uses doesn't, doesn't make sense. Never mind the active language that he has right now, that we are right now seated with Christ in the heavenly places, all the more so when we die and we're with him in soul. Um, they go to Hades. purgatory personally um there are people that do c.s lewis who was anglican definitely believe in purgatory um i think that makes light of the work of christ i think it's trying to balance the clear teachings in scripture that uh, though though we have been made clean uh through the work of christ that we're without sin um we're called to be holy um and that if there's if, if there's if we're still living in sin or whatever after we've been baptized after we've entered into the faith that needs to be cleansed by some other means. I don't think that's scriptural. I think it's very abundantly clear that Jesus alone and his work on the cross cleanses us of our sins. So if you're doing this extra work, well, who's, who's doing that work and why is it happening? And it gets really messy in terms of who's doing the saving. Because um, then it shifts from, oh, well, well, yeah, Jesus covered my sins except for the ones I did after. <laughs> right, I have to work for those. Well, no. <laughs> it is a good way to sell indulgences, yeah. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yep. Yep, it's a good way to scare poor, illiterate people uh, and build beautiful buildings. Um, so, yeah. Good, okay. So, so Jesus sends the dead, preaches the gospel, and then he comes back to life. Um, that his body was missing from the tomb, right? The tomb was empty. On the first day of the week, Luke writes, um, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Jesus said in John chapter 2 that if they destroyed the temple of his body, he would raise it up again. That Jesus wasn't a ghost, this wasn't a different body, that he came back to life in the same body. Yeah, some people don't recognize him. So there's differences in, uh, in terms of, uh, so while it's the same body, that body has been changed, right? So yes, some people don't recognize him. On the road to Emmaus, they don't recognize him until he breaks the bread. Mary Magdalene doesn't recognize him. Um, and yet, when he does reveal himself to people, so he's able to uh, hide who he is, um, when he does reveal himself to people so they are able to see him, they're able to say, oh, they clearly recognize him. Oh, there's the scars, right? So he invites Thomas, hey, put your, go ahead, put your hand in my side. Go ahead and put your fingers in, in the uh, nail marks. That's right. It's a glorified body, yeah. Walks right in. <laughs> yep, that's right. Yeah, 
yeah. So there's ways that his body is different. Um, yeah. Um, that, a, that a glorified body is not restricted in the same way that our, our bodies are. Yep, it just vanishes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, in the way that the scriptures talk about, particularly when resurrection happens, but 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 even more so at the when when there's a new heavens and a new earth, um, that the that the realm of God is now with with humanity, that this this veil between the spiritual realm and the physical realm is lifted. Um, so, and I think that's actually a really important thing for us to understand, right? So, so for example, um, when Elisha is, is um, out and his servant's really upset because he sees all these armies and he says, he prays and he says, Lord, open his eyes and he sees that there's tons and tons of angels. Um, that the, the spiritual things are not far away. They're not wispy cloud things. Uh, cloud, I don't know. Um, yeah. Um, but the, that spiritual things are not this far away thing, that they're actually actually more real than we are, right? So the, so the um, author of Hebrews talks about how the, the temple that's in Jerusalem is just a shadow of the real temple. Um, so that spiritual things are actually more real than we are. Um, so the way that C.S. Lewis talks about it in uh, The Great Divorce is, uh, spoiler alert, somebody, uh, somebody is in uh, hell and they're given the chance to go to heaven, go visit. Because there's no chance, it's not much of a spoiler. Um, when he arrived there, um, he goes to walk on the grass, and he realizes the grass isn't moving under his feet because the grass is more real than he is. Um, so this, that's his way of kind of articulating this, you know, this is just a shadow, but the real things that appear, that spiritual things are, are more real than we are. And we're limited in our senses, um, right? So the spiritual things are happening all the time, and we're not always able to see those things. Um, so, which is why, you know, Your wife doesn't want you to, but you could. Yeah. No, but I think, I think people will claim to see or, or even just sense things, right? So discerning of spirits is a, is a gift of the spirit, um, just being able to discern what's from God and what isn't. Um, be careful, yeah. Sure, you want to see that. There's a report. So uh, John Chrysostom in On the Priesthood side talks about how there are reports of people who have seen uh, angels carrying someone away who died um, af just after taking the Eucharist um, because of the holy thing that was in there. He just throws that out as an aside. Um, not that he himself saw it, but that he's, he's known other people that say these things. So, so in the early church, you still continue to see these things, and now we still continue to see these things. Um, so, and, and that's and actually from our, from our worldview and vantage point that we would view sacraments as those are real manifestations of God's grace, right? They're a means of grace that Jesus, when I receive the bread and the wine that Jesus is truly present there um, in a way that I can't comprehend or understand, but I can't nail down like Roman tries to do with this is exactly how it is. Well, I, I'm not sure exactly how it is, but I know he's really there, um, right? To the point where Paul warns people, some of you are eating and drinking without discerning the body and you're getting sick and some of you are dying. I don't die from a simple. There's something else more real going on there than what my eyes can see, what my, what my mouth can taste, right? Augustine will talk about those who, who chomp on the bread, not realizing that it's more than that.
All kinds of stuff that's happening all the time. So, again, the book, the book of Hebrews talks about those who have entertained angels unaware. Right? That there's, there's, just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not there. <laughs> right? Just because you don't see the bus coming doesn't mean the bus isn't going to hit you. <laughs> um, all the more so for spiritual things that you that we often just don't discern. Um, and asking for discernment is is good. It can be scary, <laughs> uh, but it can be helpful. Um, I remember one of the first times I prayed with Mormon missionaries, and, and they wanted to pray, so I said okay. And it was very clear that they were praying in a spirit. It was not the Holy Spirit. Um, so having having those kinds of gifts can be helpful to go, okay, is this from God or is it not from God? That's what discerning of spirits is for. Is this something that God, is this from the Holy Spirit or not? Um, right. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah, it is. get close and, and yeah and not quite hit it yeah yeah um yeah so 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 jesus has a has a paul will talk about it in first corinthians 15 as a spiritual body um he's not saying that it's not corporeal corporeal but it's not physical not saying that it's not physical right every gospel makes it very clear right so luke talks about how uh jesus walks walks in uh some of the disciples uh see him um they think he's a ghost and he says, see, I am not a disembodied spirit, and he eats with them, um, right? So the early gospel writers uh, make it very, very clear. So that when we're talking about a spiritual body, again, sometimes we think wispy, clouds, not really ethereal, not really real. No, spiritual things are more real, right? So that Jesus has a body that's, that's more realized than our body is, that my body has limits that Jesus' body does not have. But I will share um, with, that, uh, with that new body, with that new nature at the resurrection. Um, one quick note, too, as we talk about Jesus uh, rising again from the dead, um, most of you are probably relatively comfortable with that language, but I've run into people occasionally who, when we say he is risen, think we're talking about Jesus ascending to heaven. Very easy to see why they would think that. Um, so just to clarify that when we're saying, you know, like uh, during Easter we say, Alleluia, the Lord is risen. People respond, the Lord is risen indeed, Alleluia. Um, and we're not talking about the ascension, right? Jesus ascends 40 days after. We're talking about Jesus coming back to life. Um, and that language comes from the Greek word for resurrection, anastasis, which is where you get the name Anastasia. Um, so uh, literally means stand up. Um, so that's where you get in this idea of rising, right? That when you're, when you're dead, you appear to be sleeping. We see that in the scriptures, right? Um, oh, he's only sleeping or she's only sleeping, right? Or he's fallen asleep. That language is used all the time um, metaphorically for that. Resurrection has the exact same thing. You get back up. You wake up. Um, rises up. Yep, exactly. Yes. Jairus' daughter, uh, the funeral procession one. Yeah, there's a ton. Yep. to make, yeah. <laughs>
No, and, and, the, and the, the New Testament writers pin their hope on this. This is, this, and this, this is. If you, yep, that's why it's so important to do that, yeah. Um, so again, asking one of these questions, why? Uh, why did these things happen? Why did Jesus rise again from the dead? So, so Jesus rose again from the dead primarily because death could not restrain him, right? <laughs> uh, that uh, he who is life itself could not remain dead but died for our sake. Um, that when Jesus came back from, uh, from the dead, his body was glorified and that he will never die again. Um, and in the same way, we will never die again when we receive our new bodies. Um, so John talks about it this way. He says, beloved, we are now God's children and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when, we, uh, that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Paul talks about when he's writing to the Philippians, uh, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await the savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be made like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Um, so that Jesus' death and resurrection, again, he's not just making us okay with God, right? God's not mad anymore, <laughs> right? Bad view of what the gospel is, right? That, that Jesus is actually making everything about our lives, including our uh, our corporeal nature, our bodies, making them better, making them perfect, that everything about us is perfected. For all eternity, we will be, yeah, we'll have resurrected bodies that won't get sick, that won't, that won't, uh, yeah, have any of the deficiencies that our bodies do, um, that will live forever because he lives. Um, so again, this idea, yes, it's very exciting, we should, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, and, and, and it again shows the, the going back to uh, your question earlier, Sam, that shows the, the depths of God's love for us, right? That he's, he's making us like him, right? That Jesus takes on our nature, elevates it, and then we're able to share in that nature. Um, I, don't, I don't know how else to describe love, right? That's, that's, that's beyond, right? Let me make you like me. Um, it's, it's incredible um, that because he lives forever that we will live, uh, that as an Adam all die, so also in Christ will all be made alive. Um, so Jesus comes back to life, and then he ascends into heaven. Um, so Luke writes, uh, so when they had come together, uh, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were still gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Um, so we see Jesus literally ascending up into heaven, right? That there's, he's gone to be at the right hand of the Father. Um, so this, again, that brings us to one of our whys. Well, why did Jesus have to ascend into heaven? Why didn't he just stay here? Why, why doesn't he establish, restore the kingdom then, right? Like the disciples asked. One of the reasons he had already told them. Um, so in John 14, he says, and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper um, to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Um, so next week we'll talk about the work of the Holy Spirit and all that. But, but one of the primary reasons that Jesus says that he uh, must leave is so that he and the Father can send the Spirit to us. Um, 
Holy Spirit can continue the work of Jesus in us. Also that Jesus is, uh, that he ascends to heaven so that he can intercede for us. So this is Jesus' current ministry right now, that he is actively interceding for us to the Father. So again, John writes, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. Again, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Um, right, so John, John tells us that he doesn't want to live in sin, but that if we do fall, we have an advocate with the Father, um, that we no longer need to face God alone, that Jesus stands before the Father and presents his wounds in propitiation for our sins, um, that God's need and desire for justice against sin is appeased by the work of Jesus so that we may have peace with God. Because Jesus is divine, he's able to represent the Father to us. And because he's human, human, he's able to represent us to the Father. Again, he's that perfect mediator who's able to stand between God and man. Um, the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost, that he is able to completely save those who, are, who come to the Father through him. And that Jesus alone is able to do this because he makes intercession, um, because he lives forever to make intercession for us. Um, and again, this gets, this gets to the... Why does this matter? Why is Jesus alone able to do this? Um, so the author of Hebrews writes, uh, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, right? again, the spiritual form is actually the real one, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every day, make perfect those who draw near. So these sacrifices that are happening in, uh, in the temple, uh, as he's writing, um, that these, these aren't able to do this. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshiper, or otherwise they would, uh, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sins. So if these were actually able to cover sins, so then they'd stop offering them, right? Because you're done. You have your sacrifice, you're good to go. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Um, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus alone is able to do this. If Jesus had simply been a perfect man, he maybe could have died in the place of one other individual. But his death would only cover the sins of that one person. And even if God accepted such a sacrifice, it would only deal with sin. It wouldn't deal with the consequences of sin. That's why who we say Jesus is matters tremendously. That's why this is a salvation issue. Um, if Jesus was simply a creation, then he would be no more able to save humanity than a goat is able to cover the sins of all the people of Israel. Um, if Jesus, however, is divine by nature, then he can apply the work that he did in his humanity to cover the sins of all people for all time. Um, a, maybe a year ago, I was meeting with some uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, and we had been meeting for several weeks, and we had gotten through this section of the book um, called What Does the Bible Really Teach? We'd been going through that. And uh, we'd gone through the section that talked about who they believe that Jesus was. They believe that Jesus is the God's first and greatest creation. They believe exactly what Arius taught that the church responded to. And so we went back and forth kind of talking about, well, this, you know, this really doesn't, doesn't work. If we look at the scriptures, it seems to teach that Jesus is not a creature, but rather the creator. Go back and forth for a while and eventually go, well, you know what, let's, let's move on. Let's keep reading and, and you know, maybe we'll be able to come to an agreement later. So, okay, that's fine. Um, knowing full well the next section was talking about the work of Jesus, his, his, uh, his death and resurrection. So they began to talk about, well, okay, so you know, we believe that we're lost in our sins and that Jesus dies for us to cover our sins. And so I said, so if Jesus is a creature, what makes him any better than a goat to save us? 
the pause with the disrespect for calling Jesus nothing better than a goat. <laughs> but look, if he's, just, if he's just another creature, it doesn't matter how highly exalted he is. It doesn't matter if he was the first creature. He still can't cover all sins for all time. This is why this is so critical that we get the two natures of Jesus right, that we fully understand them, right? The scriptures aren't light on these details, right? So we talked about that a lot last week to make sure we're really clear. This is, this is all over the scriptures, right? But this is why. If he's not divine, he can't cover all sins for all time. If he's just a good person, he's just as limited as we are. Never mind he can't deal with the devil. He can't deal with death. He can't deal with all these other consequences of it. Uh, never mind real death. Never mind spiritual death, right? Um, that he has to be more than just a creature. Um, this is critical, right? That Jesus is son of God, son of man. He can't do any of these things, right? Yeah. Now, of course, they would they would say the Holy Spirit's just an inact, uh, just a force and not actually personal, even though the Book of Acts talks about the Holy Spirit speaking. Um, my electricity doesn't speak to me that often, but um, but that's what you have to do to try to work these things out, right? Because they're illogical, um, right? So this is again understanding who Jesus is is integral. It's it's not just something where you can go, well, that's something we talk about when we talk about who he is. So let's just talk about what he did. What he did <laughs> doesn't work unless we know who he is, unless he really is divine and human. He can't do the work that he's actually tasked with doing. Um, you can't move on from it. And so eventually we stop meeting because <laughs> I go, look, we can't, this is all integral. Understanding who he is is all, you can't move on to his work and then say that you, you know, you disagree with that. Yeah, who knows? You never know. You never know. So, um, but that's, but, but. Hopefully that's an encouragement to go, hey, it's worth, I, th I, I, I always think it's worth to only spend some time with these people to try and, try, right, somebody spent time with me, <laughs> right? Um, so we need to be doing the same thing. Um, so Jesus is, is ascended to heaven and that he is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Um, so this is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, Psalm 110. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on the day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew, on the, uh, like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. In this passage, we see God telling his son to sit at his right hand until he makes his enemies his footstool. Um, that G yeah. Yeah, this is the question that Jesus, that Jesus asked the Pharisees, actually, uh, where, they, where they're talking about how he's using this exalted language. And he says, well, how come David says, the Lord said to my Lord, who then was his Lord? Who was greater than him? And they don't have an answer, so they stop asking the question. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so you see, yeah, in, in the, in the uh, Greek, they would just be, all just regular Lord, but in the Hebrew, yeah, you have Yahweh says to my Adonai, my Lord, uh, my master, sit at my right hand. So who's David's master that's sitting at God's right hand, right, as David's writing the psalm? Well, it can't be him, <laughs> right? Uh, and who is this that's so highly exalted, um, right, that he's, that he's till, till all his enemies are made a feet, that he's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek? Um, nope. <laughs> uh, so, looking at these things and saying, okay, so Jesus, what we see in this passage is that Jesus is sitting at the right ha hand of God until he makes his enemies his footstool, and that when uh, God does this, that Jesus will return to defeat his enemies and rescue us. Um, and notice also that the passage describes not only Jesus returning to reign, but also that he's a declared a priest forever, and that he will judge the nations. That he returns, that he will set all things right, he'll establish God's kingdom. 
and that God's kingdom is different from all the other governments of the world, um, right? That God's kingdom is one where, where justice uh, prevails, um, where God sets things right, um, and that God himself will rule over his people. nations that have, that have whether you're reading Zechariah 14, Revelation 19, uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 Second Thessalonians 1, all that makes it clear that, yeah, that, that, uh, that God will, uh, that Jesus will, Paul, Paul says that Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth, the, the Antichrist and his army. Um, uh, Isaiah 66 uh, talks about who is this who comes from Basra, who, whose garments are covered in blood. Um, it's not his own blood, it's the blood of his enemies. It says, I have come, I alone have tread the wine, uh, the wine press of the wrath of God. Um, I, I am covered in the blood of my enemies. That Jesus comes to avenge, right? In the revelation, you have the saints that are asking, God, how long till you avenge us? How long till you set things right? How long till you take care of our enemies who are unrepentant and have been killing your saints? Yeah, here's the Lord appearing with his host. Yeah, this is, this is, this is, yeah, so when we, when we ask the, the question, um, just to talk about the enemies thing a little bit, a little bit, because I'll see enough of you <laughs> not feeling comfortable with that. Remember, remember, before, before we're made right with God, we are explicitly said to be God's enemy, that we are rebelling against God, we're rebelling against his ways, that we are by nature children of wrath, that we've rejected God. Um, and so we have two options. God can be just to us and give us what we deserve, or he can be merciful. And so we proclaim the gospel, hoping that, that people will accept mercy. If they don't, God will happily give them justice, right? Um, he would rather they choose mercy, which is why he's so patient um, and trying to draw us into the faith. Um, but if we choose to reject him, then yeah, he'll give us justice for the things that we've done. Um, and, it's, and, and that's why it's so important. That's why when we, when we began, we talked about that God's holy and that we're sinful, um, that we're utterly sinful, um, that we're in desperate need of help. So that God cannot be said to be unjust, that he is, he is just, um, but he'd rather be merciful. you're under orders to pray for your enemies yep right and that's the beauty of it. jesus tells his disciples pray for your enemies right jesus dies for his enemies right so that's how again that that overwhelmingly we are we are sh if, if there's an attribute that that is that god overexposes and overindulges in it's in his love and mercy right um, that he doesn't that he's not angry forever that he actually relents um, that he doesn't let us even in our sin and rebellion be as bad as we possibly could be right Think of whatever horrible tragedy you want to imagine where you go, well, God, where were you? Well, it could have been worse, right? Even if you want to pick your, pick your thing. World War II, could have been worse. Holocaust, could have been worse, right? Uh, pick your most recent shooting, could have been worse. Anything could have been worse. That God's actually restraining the evil, that there's mercy even there, um, right? When I think about how bad I am, I can still conceive of ways for me to be worse, <laughs> right? 
um, though I have my sins, right? So there's other sins that I don't, that I don't for whatever reason, indulge in and don't find appetizing. But I could, I could indulge in those things, right? That could be more wicked, um, right? That even God restrains our wickedness. So there's mercy even there, um, that everything is grace, that God is, is abundantly gracious, but that if we w- refuse him, he's going to give us what we want. Um, and so that, that's, it's important that, we, that, we, that our starting point is to understand how lost we are, how much we really do rebel against God, how much we hate God, um, but that God doesn't want us to stay there, um, and that God goes to the uttermost ends to, to rescue us and redeem us, uh, but he's not going to force us, um, and, that's, and that's important, you know. Judgment. Sure. God's really gracious. <laughs> it's 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 never it's never a good idea to bet against God being gracious. If you're if you're ever concerned about that, go read Jonah. <laughs> right. Yep. Some people's names are written in the Book of Life. Yep, and some are not. And, and you know what, but we'll, so we'll, and we'll, we'll talk about this here, but, but, but what happens when Jesus returns? Um, so uh, when Paul's writing to the Thessalonians in his first letter, he says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Um, again, there's that metaphor for those who are dead. Um, for those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. God's going to bring them with him. They're not, they're not separate, right? Wherever I am, there he will be also. Um, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so always be with the Lord. Describing here the resurrection, uh, Paul puts it differently when he writes to Titus, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, right, God desires for all people to be saved, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Again, this big picture that we are by nature children of wrath. We are by nature rebellious against God. We don't do what's right. We actually do what's evil. And God's whole goal is to actually make us people that do what's right. (laughs) Again, good news of the gospel is not that God's okay with you being a bad person. The exact opposite, right? Even if you want to go to the, the passage that people like to talk about a lot, we're, we're going to emphasize grace, right? You have been saved by grace through faith and is not of your own. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no man should boast. Verse 10, people forget to read. For you were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God commanded before for you to do. The whole aim, the whole goal is not just to say that you're okay with God. It's actually to make you well again. <laughs> it's actually to make you righteous, you have standing, right? Um, but this is what we see God desiring to do in us, that at, the, at, the, at our blessed hope when Jesus appears, um, that he will raise the dead to life um, and, and that he, we will be made like him. Um, and that in anticipation of this event, that we're purifying ourselves. 
Jesus is coming to judge the world. Um, now, we don't have time to get into full eschatology. It's the last thing. Um, and the Nicene Creed doesn't, doesn't attempt to summarize the church's views on the topic. But what the creed does announce is that Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. Um, so this is from the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Who have died there? So they, you have this idea, this idea, right, that wherever, wherever you die, that you're brought back to life. Yeah. So there's a general resurrection that everybody's brought back to life. Um, Daniel talks about this: um, that, that the righteous and unrighteous will be brought back to life. Um, I think prefiguring the two resurrections you see in, in Revelation. Wherever you are, that God will bring you back to life. Yeah. You see, you see that, so, yeah, and that might be helpful even that, that yeah, recognizing that the, the sea is a dangerous place or when they're, so even looking back to the painting we have there, right, when the disciples are losing their minds because the sea is going crazy, right? Sea's not a good place. We don't like that, right? Uh, one of the beasts uh, in Revelation comes out of the sea. Um, in Psalm 139, when he's talking about even if I make my bed in Sheol, the realm of the dead, even if I'm out in the sea where it's really dangerous, right, sea's not always good, <laughs> uh, right? That's where Le- Leviathan is. That's where all these mysterious creatures are. But when we, when we read about judgment, right, sometimes this can make us feel uncomfortable. Um, we don't like hearing about judgment. And this is, again, where the axiom is helpful. God's more just than we're comfortable with, and God's more merciful than we're comfortable with. Um, that there will be people that you don't like that are in the kingdom of heaven. There will be people that you do like that will not be in the kingdom of heaven. Both are true. thought for sure surely that person that person seems really really holy and no and there we are yep you really we really can't uh, there's not a way to really <laughs> emphasize how much we our our views and desires distort our understanding of justice and mercy um, again God's more merciful to those people that you go no they're out they're bad I don't like them Jesus can say to the thief on the cross, right? (laughs) 
he barely knows anything, right? Maybe he's seen some stories or heard some stories and kind of has an idea of who Jesus is, right? He says, you know, Lord, remember when you're in your kingdom. So he knows something, right? Um, but he shows mercy. Yep. Saul's busy going around and, and arresting people and, 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 you know, making sure that they're getting killed for the faith. And God grabs him and says, you know, you, God can do whatever he wants. Um, and again, those who appeared the most holy, right? The Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees. Jesus uses really strong words for them, right? You make, you, he says to the Pharisees, you, you make those who follow your disciples twice the child of hell that you are, um, right? So, yeah, don't, don't assume. <laughs> no, yeah, well, well and, a, and a helpful thing too, I think, is, is, is that, that as the church, we, can, we, we know where the grace of God is and we don't know where it isn't. So I can have full assurance, right? So if, if, if my son James died, that he's fully in the grace of God, that he was baptized, that, that my faith and Kate's faith and Jocelyn's faith is rooted for him, right? That he's, he's safe with God. Um, but there's plenty of other people where I'd go, I don't, I don't know. Maybe God's working there. Maybe God's working in their life, and I just can't see it, right? Again, only God sees the hearts of men. I have no idea what's going on in somebody else's life, right? Somebody might seem to really have things together. In reality, they don't. Um, only God knows. So I know where the grace of God is. I don't know where it isn't. Um, just to recognize that. We shouldn't, right? And Jesus even warns us with these parables, right? With, the, with the, the, the group of people that are hired at the beginning of the day and the group of people that only work for an hour, right? And they all get the same wage, right? Well, how come they're getting paid the same amount? Well, did you not agree with the work? <laughs> right? Don't be surprised when God's gracious to people that don't seem to have worked as much as you did. Um, if you think it's about your work, you've misunderstood what God's grace is about. You've misunderstood why you're right with God. It has nothing to do with you. <laughs> and yet he calls you to labor. <laughs> And I think even the, even the you know the the consistent language you see, whether it's in First John, whether it's in Titus, whether it's in First Thessalonians, this idea that that we're purifying ourselves in expectation for his return, right? That that and that that's a good thing. That we should want to be holy and right and good. Um, we should desire those things. Um, but but I also want to highlight that passages like this shouldn't make us shut down, right? They should actually encourage us to go share the gospel. <laughs> that people are dying in their sins, that people need to hear the good news, just like you needed to hear the good news, um, that we were marked among them, um, and that they need somebody that will love them enough to share the good news with them, that will get past whatever the hang-ups are, right? Well, I don't really like how this person smells, or you know, I just don't really like the way that they talk, or sometimes they have jokes, tell jokes that are really annoying or whatever. Well, you do things that God <laughs> surely does not like, right? But God died for you. Are you willing to take up your cross and do what Jesus did? Are you willing to go to those who, who need to hear the good news? Everybody needs to hear it. Um, are you willing to do that? The harvest is plentiful. Um, before I jump to the end, any questions about any, any of that stuff? We're talking about resurrection, Jesus' return. Sounds like a good place. Okay. You yeah.
Hebrew. And then, um, so Ar yeah, Aramaic eventually became the, the lingua franca of the people, um, and they're related. Um, and there are a couple sections of the Old Testament that are in Aramaic, but most of it's in Hebrew. Yeah, you can. You, I mean, you can read these in English, um, so you, you can find English translate. So, your the vast majority of Bibles, unless it's a, a Bible that was um, produced by um, an Orthodox church, because they actually use the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, so, if you go read like an ESV or a King James or whatever, they're using Hebrew manuscripts that they had for the Old Testament. But you can go read English translations of the Septuagint. Um, so, for example, the New English translation, they have a very readable um, translation of the Greek version. So you can go and see where these differences are. And when you're reading the New Testament writers quoting from the Old Testament, often, like maybe like 60% of the time, they're actually quoting from the Greek translation, not from the Hebrew. Um, so you actually see it all, all over the place. Um, but yeah, you can look at those comparisons. And there's, and there's differences. You know, there's lots of questions about where those differences come from. thinking of the New Testament, yeah, there's not. There are, there are uh, uh, Papias, who's an early uh, church father, says that uh, Matthew wrote his gospel originally in Hebrew, um, and that later was translated to Greek. He's the only one that says that. We don't know if that's actually true. Um, but Matthew was writing to the Jews, so there seems to be some possibility with that. There's also, I will, I will say, some indication that Jesus may have spoken Greek. So, for example, if you look at the, when he has the crowds that are coming to him um, in the Sermon on the Mount, um, there's a lot of alliteration so you lose it in English, obviously, um, but he actually uses a lot of where he's using, um, where like every uh, every uh, other word or whatever will start with the Greek letter pi, just in this one, um, which is weird to see. And you see it in Matthew and Luke, and it's a little bit different, um, but you see this alliteration happening there that wouldn't make sense in Aramaic because it's totally different words, but it's there in Greek. Um, and, he's, and he has these interactions with Greeks or where you have people that would have, that would have been the normal language. So if you have a bunch of people that are coming, they might, they, they might know some Hebrew, um, because that's what the scriptures are, but, but a lot of them are reading Greek. Um, the, and even um, Israeli culture had been, uh, it's called Hellenized, um, um, which just means it had been influenced by Greek culture, um, because the Greeks had actually come in and, and invaded. Um, and so you have, yeah, so it's possible that he actually may have spoken both. There's indications in the text that it's possible. Again, particularly when you have gatherings of people who are religiously Jewish but don't live in Israel, <laughs> right? So where they, or if you're if you're a trader, right? So a lot of times people say, like, there's even those reports, uh, you know, how can these illiterate men um, know all these things, right? The Pharisees are, are critical of the um, of the apostles, um, but they weren't all poor and they weren't all idiots, right? So you know, so Matthew's a tax collector. Well, he has to know different languages to be able to look at that. 
uh, James and John have hired servants in their boats, so they're, they're wealthy uh, and may have been educated. Um, right? Not all of them are, right? but there's, again, indication that they, that they may have been. We know for a fact that Paul was very highly educated, um, but even he uses somebody else to, he dictates his letters, somebody else writes them. Sermon Mount makes reference to it. Yep. So, yeah, you can say I learned Greek Yeah, you see that happen. So, so again, Aramaic was the language of the world because um, of the well, the uh, Aramaic, yeah. the Chaldeans had. But but even more broadly, it was the yeah, when uh, Alexander the Great goes and takes over most of the known world. Then guess what? Greek becomes the lingua franca, um, and then eventually, as the as Rome uh, becomes more and more powerful and extends the uh, empire further and further, and people shift away from Greek to Latin. You see this again in religious life, where Jerome translates the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into Latin, and that's the Bible, the Vulgate, is the Bible that most Christians in the West use for like a thousand years. Um, so, yeah, you see these shifts in languages. So most most Christians didn't read the Bible in their original languages um, <laughs> in history; they just they couldn't. Um, so, uh, yeah, but um, good. Okay, any any other questions, particularly about Jesus' return? I think it's a physical place, and you have you have you have the torture um, and suffering of of the of rejected God um, described in different ways. There are some commonalities. Fire is relatively common. Darkness is relatively common. Their worm that doesn't die is relatively common. Uh, Jesus refers to this. Revelation refers to this. Isaiah refers to this. Um, so, yeah, reading through, having a bigger view of Scripture and looking at wh- what does judgment look like, you have some relatively common themes um, that happen there. So these are things that are pointing to realities. They're not an explanation of them. I think that's really important for us to recognize, right? So when I, when I read, um, there's certain Old Testament passages that I read and I go, oh, this is very clear. This is very explicit, right? Uh, he was pierced for our transgressions. Okay, that's pretty clear. Uh, there's other times where it's not, <laughs> right? Uh, my son, I have called from Egypt when Hosea writes that. Well, Hosea is talking about the Exodus, but then Matthew quotes it talking about Jesus going and exiling into, into Egypt, right? So there's a spiritual reading to it. So there's different ways that the scriptures are understood. So I wouldn't bet on it being a literal lake of fire. If it is, great, then that was a, an apt description. We won't know till we're there. But there's times where the scriptures seem to be using more cryptic language, and the book of Revelation is explicitly said to be in cryptic language. <laughs> so I'm going to default to these are, these are signs, and sometimes those signs are explained, and sometimes they're not. Yeah, our understanding of yeah, yeah. Well, the reality is that 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 
Yeah, and the scripture uses uses you know that Jesus ascends up to heaven, so he's going up, right? Well, what, well, where's up in relation to space? It's not a question they're asking, right? So, so we can overcomplicate things. Um, so, uh, right, when you're in space, which way's up? There isn't an up, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> uh, so just you know, sometimes we can get a little messy with that. say is read Isaiah 66. <laughs> read, read where Isaiah ends. Um, maybe that's a clue. I don't know. Um, okay. So, uh, good. All right. Everybody's good, clear on clear on all the last things. Everybody's a good post-tribulation Christian. Good. Okay. Um, I am. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, but don't worry about that. That's not in the creed. Um, so, again, just, just to wrap up, that the work of Jesus Right, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his return are far grander than we tend to think about them. Um, that Jesus isn't solely focused on rescuing us, although he certainly came to do that. Um, but that Jesus came to redeem all of creation, that he's reconciling all things back to the Father through his life, death, resurrection. Um, that, is, that the work of Jesus is actually beyond just us. And so in uh, Colossians 1, Paul talks about how he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That the work of Jesus' cross is about more than just us, right? That actually our redemption is tied to the whole redemption of the whole world, like Paul talks about in Romans 8, right? That the whole creation is crying out and wait in expectation for the redemption of the sons of God, for the redemption of our bodies. We, two big heresies I think, that I think the church is dealing with right now, the, one of the bigger ones is, is Gnosticism. This idea that we want to separate spiritual things from physical things, call physical things bad and spiritual things good. Scripture does that sometimes, right? It seeks heavenly things. It's not that there isn't dualism, but that God is going to redeem and rescue all things. That's the end goal. Not that he's going to burn up a bunch of stuff and then keep the stuff that he likes. No, God, God is actually going to redeem and set things right in all of creation. That the work of Jesus is actually to set all things right in heaven and on earth. It's beyond us. And that what we see Jesus doing is that he's leading us, as Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 1, that he's leading us in triumphal procession, right? If you think uh, processions aren't biblical, they definitely are, <laughs> right? That he's leading us in triumphal procession. What is he doing? What's, what's a triumphal procession? Well, that's what you do when you've conquered, right? You're, 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 you're uh, processing in triumph. You've won, right? He's leading us in this as we're joining him in the work to actually bring the kingdom of God here on earth. And Jesus is bringing everywhere. He's going to Hades and setting, setting people free there and establishing his kingdom there in heaven where he reigns, and when he will come back, he will set up the kingdom here, um, that Jesus will establish God's rule. This is the work of Jesus. This is what he's doing, to set all things right in heaven and earth. It's bigger than us. <laughs> uh, it's more vast than us, and it's more beautiful and wonderful than we can possibly imagine, um, including how he saves us, right? And these things are tied to the redemption of our bodies, right? Um, that, that God wants to set us free and redeem us fully and completely. So let's, let's uh, as, we've, as we've done in the past, let's close with, with a hymn um, to, uh, to celebrate and worship God. Again, this, the, the knowledge that we have is completely useless if it's just for us to feel like we're really smart. Um, <laughs> right? God doesn't care how smart you are. Um, God cares that as you grow in knowledge of him, that you grow, grow in love with him as well.
uh, so we'll say load becomes with cloud vendor. you and we thank you for the gift of your son who lived a perfect life who died in our place who came back from the dead 
who ascended into heaven and is seated at your right hand until you make his enemies your footstool for his feet, that you might return and redeem and rescue us from our enemies. We praise you for the good news of the gospel, that Jesus died for us, that you loved us enough that you sent your son to die in our place, and more than this, that we are made like him in his resurrection that his resurrection power is at work in us, even now helping us to do the work that you've called us to do. That we are not lost in our sins, that just as Jesus was not abandoned to Hades, so also you have not abandoned us in our sins, but you have rescued and redeemed us. That you are even now sitting things right in our lives. That your grace and mercy are active within our lives. And we pray that you would help us to extend this grace and mercy out to your whole creation, that we might join with Jesus who triumphantly proceeds who leads us into the world that we might proclaim the good news that we might draw those who do not know you into the fullness of the knowledge of you that they with us might might become partakers of the divine nature through the sacraments that you give us that we might be made one with you we praise you for the gift of your son we pray that you would help us to share the same love that you have for us to love those around us, to desire to draw them into your kingdom. We pray these things in the name of your blessed Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.